Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. It is good to be with you in worship this morning. I'd encourage you to find the attendance pads that are in the pews and fill those out and pass them along to others worshiping beside you this morning. And uh, as you do that, I want to say greetings to those worshiping online with us today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us in worship, and, and we join with you in spirit as we offer our worship to God. I want to say congratulations to uh, the newlywed couple, Brant and Juliana Wickline, got married here yesterday, and we celebrate uh, and rejoice with them in, in that marriage and pray God's blessings upon them. The, uh, there's an insert in your bulletin for the ham loaf sale. The missions committee is doing their annual ham loaf sale, and uh, we're doing this all by pre-order, so you need to get your orders in ahead of time. Uh, by November 4th, I believe, and uh, the order form is, is in your bulletin there, so make sure you uh, take an opportunity to fill that out and get that into the office for your ham loaves, uh, and all of those sales support our various mission projects. Uh, finally, I just want to mention that uh, during the choir anthem today, you'll see that the words to the anthem are in the bulletin, and they'll also be on the screen, um, and uh, part of the reason for that is that we have these fancy new singing masks, and uh, it makes it possible to sing close together safely, um, but uh, doesn't necessarily help with the diction so much. And uh, we, we want you to be able to understand what it is that is being sung, because this is an important and powerful message. So uh, that's why the words are there for, uh, for you for the anthem. Let us uh, now be in an attitude of worship as the choir presents the music of the introits. Please stand if you are able to join us with the call to worship and remain standing for the opening hymn, Make Me a Captive Lord. We come here today not because we are clever, but because God welcomes the slow learners. We come knowing that the greatest persons will be found among those who humbly serve like Jesus did. O Lord, open our mind and our hearts and enable our lives to declare your praise. We turn to him 421, make me a captive Lord.
Please be seated. Let us pray in unison the opening prayer. God of truth, you have spoken your word to us and in us, but we have not listened to you. We have not been mindful of your presence or attentive to your voice. Have mercy on us, forgive us now, and create us anew. We open ourselves to your word. Amen. Please remain seated and turn to hymn number 432, Jesu, Jesu. Gracious, precious Jesus, we come this day to worship you. You who, though you were in the form of God, did not consider that something to grasp, but emptied yourself to become like us, to become one of us, to give yourself for us as a servant to all mankind, that we might be saved because of you. Thank you, Lord, for that great love that you have for each one of us, 
that love that you showed through your service to us, that you showed through that sacrifice you made on our behalf. Lord, you have called us to love one another even as you have loved us. You have called us to serve our neighbor even as you have been a servant to us. Forgive us, Lord, for all those times that we have been self-serving, self-seeking, watching out for ourselves rather than others. Lord, forgive us, redeem and restore us by your mercy, by the power of your grace. We come today with many concerns for loved ones, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and we lift all of these concerns to you now in this time of silent prayer. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing the most perfect answer to each of our prayers. We turn ourselves over to you, trusting in your grace in all things, following your way. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name as we offer now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite the ushers to come forward uh, for the plates as we uh, offer ourselves to God through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
join me in the prayer of dedication. O God, Jesus taught that where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. In this hour, we come bringing our treasures, all that we have and all that we are. We come seeking your treasure, treasure that does not fade, decay, or disappoint. Share with us the treasure of heaven, that we may boldly share it with others. Amen. Please remain standing for a reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as the rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated.
my greatest fear during the anthem is that I'm going to forget to mute my mic here, and I'm going to have a solo when I'm not supposed to have a solo. We all want to be first, don't we? Maybe not you, but most people do. School kids told that it's time to line up, fight over who gets to be at the front of the line. Smart teachers know that they need to designate that role of line leader ahead of time in order to head off the wrangling and wrestling over that honored position. The adult version of that is perhaps getting in front of the traffic, speeding up and and zipping around so that you don't get stuck behind someone going slower than you want to go. Zach and I went to Kings Island earlier this year, just the two of us, and we we got there before the gates even opened, and because of our season passes, we get to get to uh, certain early access rides before those suckers with one-day-only passes. (laughs) One of the early access rides that day was Banshee, which is one of our favorites, so we decided that as soon as we got through the gates, we were going to hightail it over to Banshee to beat the line, and we got through the the entry gates, and we, we took off running to Banshee. Now, I know you're not supposed to run at Kings Island, but we ran. And we were the first ones to get to the ride. We, we got on. Uh, we were there before anybody else, and we, we got on with one of us at, at each end of the front row, and we had that first ride all to ourselves. As, as the ride climbed up that first hill, we looked down on the people that were just now getting to the ride, and We imagine them saying, wow, look at those two getting the ride all to themselves. I am sure that we will remember that day for the rest of our lives, the day that we were first on Banshee. Being first is fun. Nobody plays a game thinking, man, I hope I lose this time. When I was a a kid, and my dad was teaching me to play chess, there were times that that he actually lost on purpose. He, he would let me win. But let's be honest, my dad was playing both sides of the board. I, I was just sitting there because it was more fun for him that way. I, I didn't have any idea what was going on or why he was telling me to move my pieces to the certain spaces that he was telling me to. I, ju- I just did what he told me. My dad won the game. He just won it from my side of the board rather than his. To win at the at a game, you you have to understand the rules. You have to grasp the strategy of the game. Perhaps most of all, you have to understand the object of the game. What do you have to do in order to win? If you don't know the answer to that question, then you're pretty much doomed to failure before you even start. John Ortberg tells the story of a fourth grade class in which the teacher introduced a game called Balloon Stomp. The concept of the game is about as simple as the name. It's about popping balloons by stomping on them. The trick is that each child has a balloon tied to their ankle, and they have to protect their own balloon, keep it from getting stomped on. And the child whose balloon is still inflated when all of the others have been stomped into oblivion, that is the winner of the game. Well, the first class to play the game was your typical fourth-grade class, Some of the kids were really into it. They were aggressively chasing down the other balloons and stomping them out as quickly and demonstrably as possible. Other kids hung shyly around the sidelines, trying to stay away from the fray. That didn't protect them, though. Their 
Their balloons were soon targeted and destroyed as well. The battle was over in just a matter of minutes. Only one balloon was left inflated. The owner of that balloon was the nastiest and most disliked boy in the class. He had won the game, but had he really won? A second class was brought into the room to play the same game, and this class, though, was different. This was a class of developmentally challenged children. The balloons were tied to their ankles, and they were given the same instructions as the first class. One of the onlookers said, I got a sinking feeling in my midsection. She didn't want to see these children put through the horror of the competitive brawl that was about to ensue. The signal was given to begin the game, and it soon became obvious that these children hadn't completely grasped what had been presented as the object of the game. The part of the instructions that registered with them was that they were supposed to try and pop the balloons. So that's what they did, but without any concern about trying to protect their own balloons. Ortberg writes, Instead of fighting each other off, these children got the idea that they were supposed to help one another pop balloons. So they formed a kind of balloon-stomp co-op. One boy was getting frustrated because the balloon he was going after wouldn't hold still enough for him to pop it, so the little girl to whom it was tied knelt down and held her balloon carefully in place, like a holder for a field goal kicker, while the little boy stomped it flat. Big smile. Then he knelt down and held his balloon still for her to stomp. On and on it went, all the children helping one another in the great stomp. And when the very last balloon was popped, everybody cheered. Everybody won. Now, according to the stated rules of the game Balloon Stomp, the first class had a clear winner. The second class hadn't even played the game correctly. But according to the game of life, and by the game of life, I don't mean that board game called the game of life where you work your way around the board in a little plastic car with little blue and pink pegs in it. I mean real life, where what we do actually counts for something. How we play the game actually matters and lasts. According to that game of life, the second class, the entire class, are the obvious winners. Jesus had a real challenge with his disciples. Jesus had to take a a group of perfectly ordinary people who had been taught certain things about what matters most in life and teach them in a fairly short amount of time that according to God's rule book, they weren't playing the game right. They had the object of the game all wrong. They were confused about how to win about what what, what one must accomplish in order to be declared first. James and John were two of Jesus' favorites. I call them two of his favorites. I, I don't really know how Jesus felt about them or about any of the other disciples. Feelings aside, though, it's clear that James and John got some privileges that most of the other disciples did not get. When Jesus needed to be with a smaller group than the twelve, Peter, James, and John were the three that he always took with him. When Jesus went up on top of the mountain and and was transfigured into a dazzling, bright, white light, Peter, James, and John were the three who, who he took up there with him to witness the event. And later, when Jesus would 
pray in the garden before his arrest. Peter, James, and John were the three that he asked to stay nearby to pray for him. So although I don't know how Jesus felt about any of them, I think it would be safe to say that James and John were two of his favorites. They certainly believed so. They believed they were closer to Jesus than any of the others. Now why they thought they were ahead of Peter, I don't know. Peter is the one whom Jesus called the rock. Peter is the one who actually stepped out of the boat. Jesus allowed to walk on water. Peter is the one who was always out in front of the rest. I don't know why James and John thought that they could cut Peter out and take the two positions of honor for themselves. But they were at least hoping that they could do that. That's what they were asking for. That, that is what they requested of Jesus as they were on the road to Jerusalem. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If anyone says to me, can you do me a favor? My response is always, tell me what the favor is and I'll let you know if I can do it for you. I'm not going to commit myself to something not knowing what it is first. I don't know what James and John thought they could slip past Jesus asking for it in this way. Whatever they thought, Jesus wasn't falling for it. What is it you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Now, when Jesus asked that, it's a bit different than when I ask that. When I say to someone, what is it you want me to do for you, I'm asking that question because I genuinely don't know. I need to know what they want before I can agree or disagree to do it. Jesus already knew. Jesus sees into the heart of each person. He knew exactly why they were coming to him. He knew exactly what that request would be. So why did Jesus ask them what they wanted? I think it's because he needed to hear them say it. Or or better yet, they needed to hear themselves say it. They needed to make this request out loud, to bring it out into the open, to, to get honest about what it is that they were really after here, what they thought really mattered. He needed them to make this request out loud so that he could deal openly with this question of how to play the game and what it means to win. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. That's what they thought it meant to win at this game of life, to to be given the places of honor in glory. When an earthly king would sit upon his throne, the seats directly next to him, to his right and to his left, were reserved for the most honored most respected, most important people in the kingdom besides the king. To be invited to sit at the king's right hand or left hand meant that the king was putting you on display as the most important person around other than himself. That is what James and John wanted for themselves. The disciples had no understanding of what was about to go down in Jerusalem, Not that Jesus had been keeping it a secret. Jesus had already begun to teach them about his arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection. But none of that had registered with them yet. Those words were still a bunch of meaningless nonsense to them. But they did know a few things. They knew that Jerusalem was the seat of power. Jerusalem was more than just the capital of the nation. It was the city of God. It was 
the location of the temple and the palace. Everything of any importance to the Jewish mindset was centered in Jerusalem. And the disciples knew that that's where they were headed. They also knew that Jesus was the Messiah. That had been revealed a couple of chapters earlier when Jesus gathered his disciples together and asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who declared it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That was when Jesus had called Peter the rock. He told the disciples that this had been revealed to them by the Father. He affirmed their belief in him as the Messiah. Those two things taken together, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that they were on their way to Jerusalem, that was enough for the disciples to conclude that Jesus' mission was about to come to its climax, that that he was about to reveal himself to all in his power, that he was about to unleash his power and come into his kingdom. That is indeed what was about to happen in Jerusalem, but not at all like the disciples expected. They expected that Jesus would very soon be seated upon the throne at the palace, ruling as king over Israel. When that happened, they wanted to make sure that they were given the prime positions in the kingdom. That that when Jesus took his seat on the throne in Jerusalem, they would take the seats to his right and his left. That way, everyone around would be able to see that they had won the game. That they were first. That they were best. The most important of all the other people in the land, second only to the king himself. Perhaps best of all, all of those other people would have to serve them. Wouldn't that be great for everyone else to have to serve them? Jesus then flips the script. He overturns their house of cards. He lets them know that they've been playing by the wrong rules. Indeed, that they've gotten the entire point of the game all wrong. The point of it all is not to get yourself into a position where you are considered greatest and everyone else has to serve you. The point of it all is to serve everyone else, to put everyone else on an equal footing with yourself, to help others up the ladder rather than passing them by as you climb your way to the top. The winner of the game of life is not the one who achieves the highest and most honored place for themselves in this world. The winner of the game is the one who is first in the kingdom. And to be first in the kingdom means to be voluntarily last in this world. Voluntarily last in this world. Notice that that when James and John asked for those positions of honor in the kingdom, Jesus didn't tell them that they shouldn't want to be first in the kingdom. Rather, he tells them that they have no idea what that actually means. They have no concept of what it takes to be considered first in the kingdom. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The cup of which Jesus would drink would be the cup of God's wrath 
poured out upon him in order to atone for the sins of all humankind, the baptism by which he would be baptized would be actual death, suffering death as the just punishment of sin. Jesus is saying, you're asking to be first in the kingdom? Can you offer yourself in service to all the world such that your very life becomes a sacrifice for all mankind? Can you lead, be led as, as a lamb to the slaughter for others who did nothing to earn or deserve the sacrifice that you make for them? Knowing that that is what Jesus is asking, their response is both comical and tragic. They replied, we are able. They were not able. They were not able. But the fact that they were not able is not a judgment on them. I'm not able either. Neither are you. Nobody is. Nobody except Jesus. Jesus is the only one able to make that perfect sacrifice that atones for the sins of all the world. Jesus is the only one who truly becomes servant of all. And therefore, He is the only one who can rightly be called first in the kingdom. Because that is how you become first in the kingdom. By becoming servant of to all. Jesus is the only one who could do that. And yet, and yet, he tells his disciples that they should strive for greatness. They should strive for greatness in the kingdom. They should play the game so as to win. But know what it means to win. Understand the true object of the game. It's not to be able to lord your greatness over others in this world, but to treat everyone as greater than yourself. It is not to exert your rights and take advantage of your privileges, having others serve you. It is voluntarily giving up your rights. It is conscientiously handing over your privileges for the sake of serving others. It's about doing what's best for someone else rather than what you want for yourself. That is the way of Christ. And it is by following His example. That is how we win at this game of life. You know, I realized early on that I was never going to be as good of a chess player as my dad. I just didn't get the game the way he did. But I did win several games of chess. They were the games where I just moved my pieces where he told me to. And he won the game for me. You are never going to be as good at this game of life as Jesus. But you can win. You can win by turning all of your pieces 
over to Jesus and just moving them wherever He tells you to. When He tells you to give to someone in need, don't think about whether you think that's a good move or not. Whether you want to give or not. What, what you think that person's going to do with it. If Jesus tells you to give, then give. He's the Master, not you. If He calls you to give up some of your time for, to serve a particular task, don't worry about whether that's something that you're going to get recognition for or whether you think that the payout is worth it. The payout comes at the end of the game if you let Jesus direct all of your moves for you, then you are sure to be declared the winner. Because Jesus, Jesus will win the game for you. Live your life in such a way that it is Christ living through you. Live for the sake of others. Give yourself for the sake of others. Are we able? Are we able to, to drink that cup that Christ drank or be baptized by the baptism with which He is baptized? No. No, on our own, we are not. Not of our own power or will. But by God's grace, through Christ, we can. By giving ourselves and all of the pieces of our lives over to Christ, we are able. We are able by His grace to win the game, to claim the prize, to be declared great in the kingdom. Not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, who has done it all for us. Thanks be to God. I invite you to stand as you are able for our closing hymn, which is number 530 in the hymnals. Are ye able?
please be seated and remain seated until the, the choir has made their recessional and then you will be dismissed. Go in the name of God who makes you able by His power, by His grace. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.